0: This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. In celebration of Black History Month, I'm delighted to welcome Charles Robinson. He's the public sector leader at IBM Quantum Computing and worldwide leader for the Quantum Safe Team. Charles is a veteran with over 30 years' experience in information technology, business development, engineering and management in commercial, DOD, and intelligence organizations. He's worked on all aspects of information and communications infrastructure, requirement processes, strategy and planning, Architecture management, administration, systems operation, technical development and support, performance assessment, information storage, and IT related research. His IBM Quantum Safe team is focused on securing the world's digital infrastructure for the era of quantum computing. All data, past, present, and future, that is not protected using Quantum Safe cryptography will be at risk. The longer that the migration to Quantum Safe security is postponed, the more data remains at risk. The World Economic Forum estimates that over 20 billion digital devices will need to be either upgraded or replaced in the next 10 to 20 years to use the new forms of quantum resistant encrypted communication. It's the prioritization and migration for industries like telco, healthcare, and banking, highly regulated industries that must keep data and systems secure for the long term, that's the challenge. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. So welcome, Charles, and thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you, Chris. Uh, Happy
1: to be here. Charles. i always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. So my objective is twofold, really, to give our audience a sense of what you did before you joined IBM, but more broadly to orient listeners to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into quantum-related fields. So please share with our listeners a bit about your background and your path so far, where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied and any insight into the companies or organizations where you worked before IBM.
0: Thank you, Chris. I I started my career at 17 years old in the United States Navy. I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I joined the Navy as a hospital corpsman. uh, uh, And I decided that I wanted to get into engineering. And so I transitioned from the healthcare field as a hospital corpsman, uh, over into engineering. And uh, I went to Howard University uh, School of Electrical Engineering, and I also went to Johns Hopkins University uh, School of Electrical Engineering. And um, I studied, uh, you know, control systems uh, in, in graduate communication and control systems in uh, graduate school and, and undergrad. And um, I work for several uh, large companies in the intelligence community. So I've been in the intelligence community over 30 years now. Uh, started off in, uh, in engineering roles uh, around command and control infrastructure in, in the United States intelligence community. Uh, I've worked at a lot of the three-letter agencies that folks always hear about Uh, and, and so my background has been, uh, in a a bunch of different positions at these locations, uh, primarily around software development, software management, uh, software, um, integration. Uh, and so, uh, I spent roughly around, uh, 20 years, uh, prior to IBM working for, uh, several integrators. Those integrators include. Uh, Lockheed Martin, BAE, uh, and uh, I spent about 10 years at Sun Microsystems. I was fortunate enough to um, uh, spend that time facing the intelligence community and uh, then went to IBM and uh, started my career at IBM as the uh, client executive lead for the defense intelligence community. Uh, And it was kind of apropos because uh, most of my career prior to that time had been in the defense intelligence community. So I've been very blessed and fortunate to uh, know those organizations from the inside and out. And so uh, I left IBM to uh, uh, to run Verizon's global intelligence business. And I recently got uh, recruited, come back to work on the quantum team. And to be honest, it's been, uh, you know, a a great opportunity to come back to IBM uh, to work on the IBM quantum team. Uh, And so uh, that's pretty much where we are right now, Chris.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Charles, for sharing that. Now, I know that you were instrumental in the formation of the IBM HBCU quantum center. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar with that acronym, it's Historically Black Colleges and Universities. So tell me how this initiative evolved and where we are today and what's planned for the future.
0: So uh, having uh, graduated from Howard University, uh, I worked with several folks over there to lay the groundwork for what would become the IBM HPCU Quantum Program. Uh, Prior to coming back to IBM, I worked with the VP of Research uh, at Howard University to establish an enduring relationship in uh, the national security community, and that work uh, uh, jump-started the IBM quantum relationship uh, when I came back to IBM. Uh, I can't say that um, I did this alone, so there was a lot of folks who were involved in the precursor work before I got to IBM on what uh, the HBCU community's quantum footprint is, and I kind of brought that whole community to bear Uh, when I came to IBM, Uh, but once I got to IBM, I saw that there was a lot of, uh, energy and, um, and there was some, some people who were like-minded, including my direct manager, Scott Crowder, and the person who runs the IBM quantum, uh, computer, uh, uh, center and program today, her name is Dr. Kayla Lee. Uh, and so... Uh, there was a, a lot of uh, folks inside of IBM that wanted to uh, do something significant for the HBCU community, and I was just fortunate enough to, to provide so, some, some, some background pre-work in order to jumpstart at an IBM, um, but the heavy lifting and, and, and the execution of, of the program that is ongoing is, is led by Dr. Kayla Lee, and I am also proud of uh, what she's been able to accomplish uh, with the IBM HBCU program. Right now, if you look at the IBM HBCU program, uh, it has uh, roughly 24 HBCUs across the US and they're all working on quantum computing uh, in IBM's quantum network. Uh, And this is significant because according to the 2021 Pew Research uh, Center report, um, black workers only make up 9% of all STEM jobs in the US and a number uh, that has remained flat since 2016. Historically black colleges and university educate roughly about 18% of the black graduates in STEM and uh, STEM degrees. And I know this because I have t- three children who graduated from Howard University in STEM degrees. And so I'm very familiar that these numbers are low and need to increase. Um, Essentially uh, the HBCUs account for 30% of all the science and engineering PhDs awarded to black graduates. And so they do a large amount of good with a small amount of resources. And so the IBM HBCU quantum program is one of those situations where it serves as a force multiplier across the the whole of the United States of America.
1: And so Charles, thank you for sharing that. And what's planned for the future? What's the vision? Like what a, what an exciting initiative. Um, Just want to get your take on, you know, where you see this going in the coming
0: years. The one thing I can say is that this program, which actually started off with Howard University and now, as I mentioned, has 24 HBCUs associated with it, uh, had such an impact that, uh, that our leadership, Arvin Kushner, uh, when he went to, to visit the White House, and of course, Kamala Harris, who's a Howard University grad, uh, met them. They asked how IBM to establish a similar program with the IBM Cyber uh, Program, the IBM HPCU Cyber Program, and so that was a spinoff from the IBM HBCU work. And, and wh- where I see this going is I see that there's going to be a strong coupling with IBM and not just the HBCU community, but all colleges and universities throughout the world around quantum and cyber. And that's important for two reasons. One, uh, there's a nexus, as you mentioned, between quantum and, and quantum safe. And so the workforce needs to be developed along both of those uh, uh, veins. And so the the answer to the question is there is going to be the need to develop STEM talent. And these types of programs are the basis of how we're going to get there from a whole of uh, 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 country perspective and even globally, Um, Chris.
1: Very impactful, thank you. Charles, let's talk a little bit about your portfolio, your remit, if you will, and your current role. So IBM cryptography researchers have been working on lattice-based cryptography for, for years, really. Um, you know, Before there was a formal IBM Quantum Safe team established. So share with our listeners how you navigated into a leadership position in this fairly new part of IBM's organization.
0: I've been blessed to, to have been built intelligence community systems throughout my career um, that, uh, that deal in highly secure environments. Uh, and, uh, you know, cryptography and communication systems is an area that I specialized in in my graduate work. And uh, it was one of those things where, because I was the public sector leader for the IBM quantum computing team, uh, most of the clients that i normally touch were the Department of Defense and the intelligence community, which is my background. And so I saw the need very quickly early on at IBM, uh, when we went out to talk to these clients about quantum computing, that uh, they had interest in um, uh, uh, the corollary, which is uh, quantum safe. And so I approached my manager as I did with the HBCU program and talked to him about establishing a relationship uh, on the IBM Quantum team uh, with uh, the Quantum Safe uh, program. And um, IBM did some organizational changes and brought that uh, security component underneath the IBM Quantum team last year. And so since that time, we have been building out assets uh, as well as uh, strategies and um, uh, also uh, putting together the construct to create a global market and lead the global market in, in quantum safe. And what underpins that is cryptography. So the IBM uh, research team established a relationship early on in the 70s. IBM had the first cryptographic algorithm uh, uh, standardized by NIST. Uh, and since that time, they've been standardizing algorithms in IBM research for some time. Those who on the call may uh, recall DES, triple DES, and and others, elliptical curve cryptography. All of these types of cryptographic algorithms have been developed by the IBM research lab. And so these uh, new post-quantum cryptography algorithms that has been selected by NIST just recently, uh, and those are crystals-Kyber, crystals-Dilithium, and uh, Falcon, and there's another one that IBM uh, 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 um, was not directly involved in, Sync Plus, but now has an individual who worked on that as part of our team. Uh, we have been working on algorithms and cryptography at the research group, like I said, for since the 70s. And this latest tranche of algorithms, which are called post-quantum cryptography algorithms, uh, has been developed by our IBM research team. And so that part, the lattice based part, which you talked about, has been in research for some time, and that provides a novel scheme, uh, cryptographic scheme, that will protect against quantum computers, particularly Shor's algorithms implementation uh, uh, on cracking. Uh, uh, Classical cryptography lattice-based cryptography will protect against that, and right now that is something that uh, the world uh, is waking up to, and IBM is at the forefront of uh, you know promulgating that across uh, 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 multiple markets um, uh, across the globe
1: so. Perfect segue. Tell me about what kinds of solutions you're offering to clients who are focused on quantum safe cryptography, you know protecting their data from being stolen and decrypted at a future date when quantum computers are able to crack today's encryption protocols. What kinds of solutions uh, is the IBM Quantum Safe bringing to the market?
0: So, uh, you know, just to recap, we submitted uh, several candidates in 2016 to NIST, and they were announced last year in um, July of last year. Of course, um, Chris, you and I talked about this. Um, You know, I spoke uh, on behalf of IBM. I was privileged to speak to Congress uh, last year uh, to get those algorithms released and talk about the, the need to get them as soon as possible. And, and so, but we made a bet inside of IBM. Um, and that bet was okay, these algorithms that we submitted to NIST, these lattice based cryptographic algorithms, are going to be selected. And so we started looking at our systems and also our internal systems uh, uh, way before they announced uh, what, the, what the current down were. And so we remediated tape our tape drive, and and the reason why we started looking at tape is because most of the stored data uh, is actually on tape. So if you can actually, uh, you know, uh, put the new lattice-based post-quantum cryptographic algorithms on tape, it would allow folks that have a lot of tape drive holdings to make that data uh, cryptographically secure. We also looked at uh, the IBM Z16, Uh, Mainframe system to make sure that those algorithms were implemented on the mainframe because the mainframe uh, underpins our banking and uh, telco industry and it uh, uh, underpins all of our transactional uh, 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 data from banks uh, with all of the credit card transactions and the like. And so we looked at those systems to make sure that we could jumpstart uh, uh, our customers to become quantum safe. So we can actually protect uh, against folks using a quantum computer in a nefarious way.
1: The focus, as I mentioned in my opening remarks around certainly telco and healthcare and banking, where data needs to be, you know, is mission critical that you keep data safe and secure. I read that IBM recently announced that it's an initial member of a telco industry group, GSMA's Post-Quantum Telco Network Task Force. Uh, supporting post-quantum cryptography adoption across the global telecommunications supply chain. So we made the point earlier that organizations, industries need to get ready now. So tell me about how this task force is helping the world's telcos upgrade to a quantum safe infrastructure.
0: Chris, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I am am very proud of the IBM team uh, for thinking about this from a market a uh, uh, creation standpoint and uh, when they think about it from a market creation standpoint, that means bringing all of the stakeholders and market segments together to think about how they can uh, uh, approach this uh, in a block. Uh, that is important because they have common concern. And so our our, our quantum team as well as well as our, our, our consultant team inside of IBM, approached several customers um, about the concept of creating a task force where the telecommunications companies could come together. And they've been working uh, uh, for over a year uh, to figure out what that could look like. And, and they landed on GSMA, which was a ready-made organizational construct that, that we could leverage, and and the task force was, uh, was formed. And uh, we had a leading member, uh, Vodafone, <laughs> and we had several other leaders, as well as you know, uh, in the telco space that participated. And the charter was uh, to work on common concerns around post-quantum cryptography from a telecommunications perspective. Uh, that would include your hardware and software uh, supply chain or your industrial base, as well as any policy concerns across any of the uh, governmental organizations across the globe that you had common concern or, or at least a point of view and so those things uh were a couple of items of most many that they started to explore and that what what has culminated in an in, in in original charter has has, has uh uh collimated into a white paper point of view which is the first white uh work product from the telecommunications industry that is going to be announced on and disseminated uh, via the web on Monday, and so the first tranche of work that uh, was done by the GSMa uh, Quantum Safe Task Force uh, will be presented to the world on on Monday at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, and I will be there with all of the telecom companies, and uh, there, there's a lot of pride. Um, Uh, amongst the telecommunications organizations by being the first ones uh, to lean forward in this space. As you know, telecommunications uh, is the critical infrastructure that underpins our economy, and so we just have to make sure that that part of it is done right.
1: I look forward to seeing that document on Monday, and it makes total sense. Kudos to you and the team for leveraging an existing industry group that's you know, focused on this challenge and, you know, leveraging relationships and um, learnings and best practices, right? I want to shift gears for a moment and talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is workforce. And I know you've had several different roles, obviously, over the course of your multiple careers. I wanted to ask um, on behalf of our listeners if there are skills in similar adjacent disciplines that might qualify people to work in this new area.
0: So, Chris, you and I, Uh, uh, I have a passion for workforce development. As you know, I just completed my uh, year as the Quantum Economic Development Consortium Workforce uh, Committee Chair, and you work with me on that committee. And uh, this is so critical. um, As we talked about with the HBCU Quantum Program, it is so critical that we increase our STEM skills uh, in quantum and quantum-safe, uh, these emerging technologies require, uh, in some cases, a different mindset. Uh, when you think about quantum uh, computing, as an example, some of the uh, the concepts that you use in order to make quantum computers useful uh, requires you to think a little differently. Uh, and but at the end of the day, these are still computer scientists, these are engineers, these these are physicists. Uh, These are information technology people. Uh, But I want to say something um, uh, that you and I both are aware. Because we are an emerging market, whether it's quantum computing or quantum safe, uh, this market is relatively new and short. And so there's a need for all skills uh, uh, across a, a, a wide spectrum of, of, of disciplines in, in it, that need to be educated around quantum and quantum computing and quantum safe, uh, And so, uh, you know, I, I wanna uh, say one thing about that. I think it's important that um, folks understand that the National Quantum Initiative uh, set out by the, the NIST organization and DOE uh, under the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy has created pathways for K-12, through for college, uh, for graduate, as well as folks that uh, are in their current careers. And so I encourage anyone listening uh, to, to, to visit the Office of Science Technology Policy website, uh, to visit the Quantum Economic Development Consortium website, uh, to talk with people in the industry because there is opportunities to uh, learn about uh, these emerging markets. And 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 th- these emerging markets will need people who are not just engineers, physicists, or computer scientists. They will need everyone.
1: Yes, no, I, well, we're in violent agreement, as we used to say <laughs> at IBM. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, Charles, I'd like to end the podcast by asking my guest to look into their crystal ball and share their vision of the future. In this case, we know that NIST plans to publish their PQC standards next year. just so want to get your take on how quickly everyone's data will be quantum safe, what the process might be.
0: So, I mean, when you when you look to the future, you, you, you have to understand the past. And so in the past, when we've had these cryptographic rollouts, they have taken a considerable amount of time. And the reason why that is is because, excuse me, these cryptographic rollouts require, um, there, there, there are policy uh, components that require organizations to retain data for periods of time. In certain cases, uh, it may be due to the fact that it is a platform, uh, like an automobile is an example. Uh, when, they, when, you, when, you, when you buy an automobile, you buy uh, a, a complete system and in order for them to upgrade that system to make that quantum safe, then that would require an ECP or an engineering change uh, to, to, to that to that environment. And so some of these take long time, a long time to roll out. And so you can think about um, SCADA systems or uh, oil and gas industries, uh, upstream and downstream systems. Uh, these systems um, have maintenance windows where they only go in and maybe change them once or twice a year because production flow is important. So there's, there's, there's some challenges in that uh, the cycles that are required to change enterprises uh, have, have, have policy-driven uh, decision vectors. Uh, but what one can do today is start to prepare to get their heads around uh, what that time frame could look like. We call that the preparation phase. So what that requires you to do is kind of look at where you are, look at what your systems are, figure out where your cryptography is in your organization, stack rank uh, and prioritize which ones you wanna do first, second, third, uh, create a plan and start to get ready today. Uh, and the reason why you wanna do that is because once those standards come, you have an execution plan. And so IBM, we uh, uh, partner with organizations to do that, and that's something that our team, my team specifically, uh, does in the marketplace. And so, um, uh, so my 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 straight answer with you, uh, uh, Chris, is uh, get going now, put a plan together, and uh, this will uh, uh, eventually uh, come. Uh, to closure uh, uh, in the normal amount of time that a cryptographic rollout will take.
1: Well, Charles, we've come to the end of our session. Thanks so much for sharing that perspective. I really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciate you taking the time to share your background and insight with our listeners. Uh, I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. It's a website, by the way, uh, ibm.com slash quantum slash quantum dash safe. People want to learn more information about the work you're doing. So thank you again. Thank you, Chris. Thanks again, Charles, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Charles. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology.
0: You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.